as, uh, as Caitlin mentioned, I'll be speaking on By Knowledge and By Love. And what we're going to do is a kind of deep dive into what it means to be made to the image and likeness of God. So, to orient ourselves, to situate ourselves, I suspect that a few of us are familiar with a kind of contemporary discussion centering around the image of God and how the image of God is reflected in the body. So certainly uh, in discussions centering on the theology of the body, there is great concern with precisely this theme. Question being, in what does the image of God principally consist? Where is it to be located? Where is it to be found? How is it to be acknowledged and addressed? Now, there are elements in the tradition that detect and correct for a kind of anti-material strain. What do I mean in saying that? Well, in the history of the church, there have been a variety of heretical movements that have been very negative with respect to the body. Now, there's a kind of healthy Christian suspicion about the body because we recognize the fact that we have a sensitive appetite which can be easily led astray. But throughout the course of the church's history, she has always vindicated the place of the body in the incarnate order, in the sacramental dispensation, and in salvation, you know, crowned by the resurrection of the body. So there are elements recently in the tradition that want to remind us that we cannot abide an anti-material strain, or we cannot abide a kind of anti-incarnate or Gnostic tendency. So one of the ways in which this plays itself out is with respect to the sacrament of marriage. There can be a thought surrounding marriage, namely that it's a concession to the flesh, and one need only or ought only be married as a kind of admission that one cannot attain to the high calling of a celibate vocation, and so at the very least, he or she can consent him or herself with something goodish. Okay? So in, again, in the last 25, 30, 40 years, there has been a kind of insistence that we need to recognize the place that the body occupies within a sound theological anthropology, and specifically as it concerns the image of God. The most excellent, uh, the most prominent example of this being uh, St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which is published in the volume, Man and Woman, He Created Them. And a lot of us know the backstory that he gave these homilies, or he gave these addresses on a succession of Wednesdays from the years 1979 to 1984, and that they were subsequently collected and edited and then published and republished. So I would also submit, and this will occupy us in the time that we have together, that there can be a problematic way of reading the theology of the body. Okay? There can be a problematic way of reading the theology of the body. To note from the outset, this is not against the theology of the body in any way, shape, or form. But what I want to do is to promote a reception of the theology of the body that takes account of the anthropology that St. John Paul II simply presumes, that he simply presumes. So there is a lot that is said about different kinds of Thomism. Uh, there is a sign on one of our professor's door. Uh, it says uh, unity, no, it says diversity statement of the Dominican House of Studies. Almost all forms of Thomism are welcome here. <laughs> uh, so there's one strain of Thomism that you may have heard called Lublin Thomism or phenomenological Thomism that takes account of certain elements of personalism and works them into the Thomistic tradition. So St. John Paul II is operating within this kind of paradigm. And so he is presuming a lot of what has been worked into Catholic DNA over the course of the centuries. And he doesn't take pause or he doesn't hesitate to explain it at great length. So what we're going to do 
is explain that at greater length so as to appreciate the insights that are at stake, that are on offer, um, so as to situate them in the context that is presumed. So, three points. First, the image of God. Second, the dynamism of the image of God. And third, image and body. And then we'll have a short concluding point about man's place in the cosmos. So the image of God. What does it mean to be made to an image? St. Thomas entertains this question in the first part of the Summa Theologiae in question 93. And he says that there are three qualities or qualifications for what is a true image. First, he says, it resembles the thing imaged with respect to its highest perfection. It resembles the thing imaged with respect to its highest perfection. And you can already see where he's going. He's going to say that there's a connection here with our intellectual nature, okay? So that we are made to the image of a God who is intelligent. So if I were to say that I am made to the image of Chipotle, right, because I very much love burritos, um, that is an inadequate way by which to explain my dignity because that's to take something base, mind you, integral to human flourishing, but not necessarily (laughs) part of the height of what it means to be man or woman. Okay, so when we describe an image, it reflects the highest perfection of that on which it is imaged. Second, he says, it resembles that thing according to its proper species. All right, it resembles that thing according to its proper species, either in its species, he says, or as resembling it in characteristic. What do we mean by this? Well, he takes an image here. Uh, from coin making. So you recall that um, when Christ is posed with the question of whether or not to pay the census tax, he is asked that someone hand him a denarius, and he says, whose image, whose icon, and whose inscription is present here? Well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So we have a sense of an image as reflecting that on whom it is typified, right? And that it has to be somehow resembling him in what is proper to him. So, What is most perfectly to the king's image is his son, is his progeny, is his heir. But in an extended sense, that coin is also to his image because it denotes the extent of his reign. It it, it denotes his dominion. So it's not just simply to say that the coin looks like him, but it symbolizes something that is proper to him, namely that all these pertain to him by right. So an image either, either needs to reflect it in its proper species in the way that man begets man, or according to a kind of characteristic, as denoting, in this case, dominion. And third, he says, the image must derive or proceed from that of which it is an image. So it's not as if you're kind of like wandering through the forest one day, and you see like a piece of quartz that is perfectly sculpted um, in the shape of, I don't know, like the Blessed Virgin Mary. You're like, wow, fascinating. Okay? And then you're like toddling further yet in the, like, in the forest, and then you see a stump that has been like destroyed by a lightning strike. And this, too, has been shaped in the pattern of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You're like, oh my gosh, okay? Either Zeus has gotten into courts, or this is an accident, okay? So we wouldn't say that one is made to the image of the other in a direct way. There's no causal correlation between them. But he says a true image, there is a causal correlation, okay? So the one obtains from the other. So these are our three characteristics of a true image. Namely, reflects the thing with respect to its highest perfection, according to its proper species and as derived or proceeding therefrom. Now, let's work this out as concerns intellectuality and image. 
So St. Thomas will say that the image of God inheres principally in intellect and will. The image of God inheres principally in intellect and will. Which is to say, that aspect, that dimension of human life, which most perfectly resembles the Godhead, are our highest powers. So, in a kind of typical anthropology, as you've heard explained, we're made body and soul, and the soul acts through powers, and you can build up an image of those powers from the bottom up. So we have certain powers that we share with plants, like growth and nutrition and reproduction, certain powers that we share with animals, like sense cognition, sense appetite, and locomotion, and then certain powers which are proper to us. Among all of material creation, only we exhibit intellect and will. So you'll hear it said, perhaps, in the 20th century, this is common, imago dei est capax dei. To be made to the image of God means to be capacious for. It means to be receptive of God. And that we meet God principally in intellect and in will. So, the question then is, given that intellect and will are powers poised for action, to further realization, to exercise and activity, for what? Intellect and will for what? Knowledge and love of what? And St. Thomas will say that the intellectual nature imitates God chiefly in this, that God understands and knows himself. We're going to leave that right there, and then we're going to come back to it. Okay? Here, to fill out our first point, let's just talk about what St. Thomas describes as gradations of the image that we can observe in creation. So he says that there are a variety of ways in which material creation, or all of creation for that matter, resembles God. So he says we can, we can trace certain what he calls vestiges, or traces as it is sometimes translated. Those things which imitate God insofar as they exist, or insofar as they live. So here we can think of rocks, and trees, and animals. Next he says, there is what he calls properly so-called an image. So here, we mean men and angels. So man possesses a natural capacity for knowing and loving God. It consists, he says, in the nature of these spiritual faculties. Beyond this, he says, creation can further resemble God in the order of grace. So when we possess actual knowledge and love of God, albeit imperfectly, and when our minds and hearts are attuned to divine things. Fourth and finally, he adds glory. Glory, which is the permanent state of grace. Man knows and loves God in this state perfectly. Okay? He knows and loves God in this state perfectly. So what exists first as capacity and then is actualized in activity becomes in glory a perfect realization of the very thing for which we were made. So again, vestige, image, grace, and glory. As a helpful mnemonic, you can remember vig with a very hard G. <laughs> so here we're talking about the traces of God and then the image proper to creation. And then in grace, the image proper to recreation or redemption. And then finally, the image of perfect likeness, the image of assimilation, whereby we are likened to God in a way that suffers no loss or diminishment. So that's a basic sketch of the image of God as St. Thomas explains it. <clears throat> Next, the dynamism of the image of God. Here, 
a word from St. Thomas, and a word from St. Augustine. St. Thomas writes in the first part, question 93, article 7. First and chiefly, the image of God, or the image of the Trinity, is to be found in the acts of the soul. That is, inasmuch as from the knowledge which we possess, by actual thought we form an internal word, and thence break forth into love. But since the principles of acts are the habits and powers, and everything exists virtually in its principle, therefore secondarily and consequently, the image of the Trinity may be considered as existing in the powers, and still more in the habits, forasmuch as the acts virtually exist therein. You don't need to recall that in its entirety, nor trace it down. We'll just talk it through. What is St. Thomas saying? That we image God principally insofar as we act as knowers and lovers, which is to say that we image God's principally when we are fully alive, when we are on the way towards God, and not merely in a kind of passive or dormant state. But, he says, we can trace these acts back to the powers from which they issue and the habits that inform those powers. What does he mean here by habits? You can think of like virtues. So what are the habits that inform the mind? Well, faith, for instance, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, art, prudence. What are the habits that inform the heart? Well, hope, charity, justice, religion, piety, obedience, etc. So, the image of God principally consists in our actualizing this potency, but it also exists in the way that that potency is, you know, in the soul and how it's been informed by virtues. So, already here, we see kind of in germ a spectrum of the way in which the image can be realized, and that is on a spectrum of actuality or actualization. A word from St. Augustine. The image of God exists in the mind not because it has a remembrance of itself, loves itself, and understands itself, but because it can also remember, understand, and love God by whom it was made. I'll repeat this. The image of God exists in the mind not because it has a remembrance of itself, loves itself, and understands itself, but because it can also remember understand and love God by whom it was made. So keep that in mind, and we'll return to it briefly. So here, I just want to distinguish what we can call a static image of God and a dynamic image of God. The first is sometimes called image of representation, and the second is sometimes called image of conformity. So again, a static image of God or image of representation, which just shows what it is, and then a dynamic of image of God, or an image of conformity, which already entails us being shaped unto God. So, the static image of God. Here we can think about the way that St. Augustine describes it in his big book on the Trinity, De Trinitate, especially in books 13, 14, and 15. It's a very difficult book, but it's worthy. It's very worthy of our effort. So, Augustine will say that the structure of the human psyche actually reflects the pattern of knowledge and love in the Trinity. This is a staggering claim. The structure of the human psyche reflects the pattern of knowledge and love in the Trinity. So here we have the kind of classic faculty analogy. So he'll talk about mind, knowledge of oneself, and love of oneself as imaging the very Trinity, the very persons of the most blessed Trinity. So mind, men's, 
Knowledge of oneself, notitia sui, and love of oneself, amor sui. So here, what we're talking about is an image that attains to God not as he is in himself, but rather according to the soul's own proper mode of being as the cause of that being, as God is the cause of that being. Okay? So here, the kind of Spark Notes version is that we are capacious. Okay? And that we are actually patterned on the very life of God in a way that's properly human, right? But kind of broken open to a divine reality. That we have minds with which to know and we have hearts with which to love. And already we have a kind of toehold in the most blessed trinity because we have the faint notion that knowledge and love are at work in the heart of God himself. So now let's move to the dynamic image of God or the image of conformity. I pause here to note that when St. Thomas talks about the image of God, he does not speak so much about the imago Dei as our being made ad imaginem Dei. So in the very statement thereof, he's talking about us being towards the image of God or unto the image of God, which is to say that it's not something that is just given out and admits of no change, right, like an integer, okay? You can't really tinker with the number one or the number two without them becoming something else, okay? You're just like, I just want to boost one up a little bit. Like, no, then it's two and it ceases to be one, okay? So we're not talking about an image of God, which is just some kind of stable state. Rather, we're talking about something that can be actualized or realized by kind of progressive um, furtherance, okay? So, in this, we already have the notion that it signifies a certain approach as of something at a distance, okay? It signifies a certain approach as if something at a distance. So then, let's consider the thing towards which it is approaching. And here, it's helpful to describe what uh, St. Augustine calls the analogy of word and love, one of the images uh, for the Most Blessed Trinity which St. Thomas seizes upon as especially apt for communicating what is at stake. So I'll take an example. Um, Perhaps you've had the experience of having had a thought that is so powerful that it changes you uh, physiologically. Okay, that's a a vague way of describing it. Perhaps you've had something that upsets you so much that you can't go to sleep. Okay, has this happened to you before? Okay, you like lay down in bed at 10.15, you're like, now is the time when I go to sleep. Um, and then you're like, at 10.30, you're like, ah, tonight is a night on which I will not sleep. All right, <clears throat> let's get the things done. Here we go. Um, so we've all had the experience of having a thought that's very potent. All right, so somebody whom you love very much says something to you that's cross and slighting. Um, and it's as if they didn't think of you. And it's as if they betrayed your friendship, which has meant so much. And it causes you great distress. Okay, And that thought takes up in your mind and heart a kind of life. And you have almost no control over it until such time as you talk it out, okay? So we have a capacity to think very potent thoughts. I think the the angriest I've ever been um, was at a AAA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was planning to go to Colombia to stay with the Dominican friars there and to work on Spanish. And I, you know, don't really know anything about travel. And so I was told that you should get one of these debit cards that um, prevent people from stealing all of your money. And I was like, that seems sensible. Um, Where does one obtain these debit cards? And they were like, you should get an American Express one because then it has travel insurance. I was like, I am for travel insurance as well. Um, And then they were like, and AAA has a stranglehold on the market. I was like, ah! Um, So I did what any sensible person would do. I looked up the nearest branch of, uh, of AAA that wasn't in the District of Columbia. 
Um, and then I called that one, and I confirmed that they didn't have any of these things, and that I would have to go to one in the District of Columbia. So I was like, this is going to end poorly. Um, <laughs> so then I called that branch, and I was put on hold, and then I spoke with an attendant, and then they said, yes, we have them in stock. And I said, great, I'll be there shortly. And then I came, and I was greeted by a gentleman, and I said, sir, I would like to obtain an American Express traveler's debit card. Um, I am one who has done his research and am prepared for this transaction. <clears throat> and he said to me, ah, we don't have them. <laughs> and I said, ah, yes, the District of Columbia. Um, and then he explained to me that when you call AAA and you're put on hold, you'll be switched through their operator to the nearest branch, not necessarily the one that you called. So when you ask them if they have a discrete physical object which occupies space in this world that may not be universally available at every branch, they will answer in the person of all AAA attendants. And they will give you a strident and secure yes, such that when you show up at your particular branch, you will be devastated by the recognition that not only have you not been lied to, but you can't even train your anger on the proper object. So the man explained to me that they actually had some cards, but then they were like in a safe, and then his manager wasn't available, and they needed an access code, and I was like, can you text your manager? And he's like, no, and then I was like, can, is there any other way? And he's like, well, there was this old passcode, but I've forgotten it. I was like, don't you have it? And he's like, well, I'd have to find it in the computer. I was like, can you attempt? And then I watched him do this while logging in. He goes, let me see, and then he went. <clears throat> And it was at that point that I knew <laughs> I was in the District of Columbia. Um, so um, my heart rate was elevated, you know. Let's see, I'm a 31-year-old I'm a man, so I was told that you're supposed to take 220, subtract 31, so my max heart rate is 189. At that point, it was like hovering around 250. Um, and I was seeing red. Uh, and it took me a while to settle down. But what I came to discover was that if I ever needed to check whether or not I had hypertension, I could just think of this transaction, okay? <laughs> So rich was the experience, so potent the thought, that it could change my whole life, okay? So, we have had experiences of potent thoughts. Now, by analogy, think of how very potent is the thinking of God. So St. Augustine directs our attention to God, who is his existence, who is his intellect, who is his act of intellection, who is the very object of his intellection whose divine being is poured out in one eternal intelligent act. So God thinks himself in so rich a fashion that that interior life, he says, proceeds as a word, proceeds as a concept, that God speaks it forth from all eternity as originating from him. And that God goes out, that God goes out to his word and his word goes out to him in love because one cannot experience alterity in the Godhead, but as a kind of ecstatic act. He speaks of it as knowledge prorumpens in amore, literally bursting forth into love. So it's an eternal and spontaneous and abundantly rich circumcession, or perichoresis is the word that you'll often hear used in this regard, dynamism within the very life of God. Okay, so this is the thing to which we are approaching. So, consider the second of the person. It's the second of the Trinity, the Son, because in God, this is by way of summary, to be denotes simply to know and to speak. There is an intelligible emanation 
or intellectual procession in God's self-knowledge terminating in the word spoken, the very inner word whereby the knower knows. Think then of the third of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Because knowing is a generation of a likeness of what is known, and because likeness is the very ground of love, there is a further procession in God of love terminating in the very reality of love itself, whereby the beloved is in the lover. I'll repeat that because it's kind of convoluted. This is with respect to the procession of the Holy Spirit. Because knowing is a generation of a likeness of what is known, and because likeness is the ground of love, we love those things which are like to us or which we recognize as fitting for us, there is a further procession in God. What is that procession? That is the procession of love, terminating in the very reality of love itself, whereby the beloved is in the lover. So summary. The word of God is born of God, begotten of God, by the knowledge of himself, and love proceeds from God according as he loves himself in ecstatic fashion. So this is the term of our being made ad imaginem Dei. This is the reality which we are approaching. So God makes creatures like himself and unto himself. And so creation reflects Trinitarian life, mens, notitia sui, amor sui, and is assimilated thereunto. So what we are hoping for in the life of grace and in the life of glory is a participation in the very inner Trinitarian life of God. Nothing short of that. So to be Christian is not to be uh, like nice or kind or to follow the rules well. It is to be like God in this rich and thoroughgoing sense. And people will try to evacuate that of all content. They'll be like, Jesus was like a nice dude. You know, like, look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like, love your neighbor. Everyone's your neighbor. So, like, love everyone. So, like, make sure to use fair trade coffee and recycle. You know, it's like, okay, those are good things. But what we're called to is infinitely better. Infinitely better. And we should be starved to our crazy bones until such time as we can feast at that banquet. Okay, so uh, a short passage here from Father Romano Cesario, who teaches at St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts. We can discern, he says, three levels of realization in the one image of conformity. First, as much as the adopted children of God formally participate in the divine nature, the remote principles of our knowing and loving are analogically the same as the divine processions themselves. Okay. So we talked about how we have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. And then we talked about how at the very heart of God, there is knowledge and love. So what he's saying here is our very capacities, our spiritual powers, are a kind of analogical sharing in God's life. Okay? So here we're talking about faculties. So that's the first. Second, since by faith, the human person shares in the divine knowing act and by hope, and most especially by charity, in the divine loving act, the proximate principles of our knowing and loving are analogically the same as knowing and loving within the Trinity. Okay, again. Here, he is saying that by faith and by love, God speaks and pours his own knowledge and love into our hearts. So when we say that by faith we know with God's knowledge, 
We're talking about it as God's very knowledge of himself. So what are the first principles of like faith discourse or theological discourse? It is the knowledge of God and of the blessed. But that's a knowledge, God's knowledge, all of God's knowledge is knowledge of himself. He knows all things in himself. So that knowledge becomes the very seedbed of our own thinking, of our knowing. So we have a kind of participation by virtue of faith in God's knowing of himself. And so too with charity. So by virtue of charity, we have a participation in God's loving of himself. And tangentially, this is why charity is not condescension. Okay? If you've ever been conflicted, like, I want to show this somebody a charitable deed, but I fear that they will think themselves less on account of the fact that they are in a position of relative need and I am in a position of relative superiority. Right? This is why we all hate the thought of being a charity case. Right? This is why, given this principle, this is why charity is not an act of condescension. Because it's not you. Because it's God loving in and through you in a real, a terribly real way. God's very love of himself is poured into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, whereby we can recognize him as the source thereof, and then love with the very same. Okay, so that's second. Third and finally, the objects attained in these knowing acts are analogically the same as with the Blessed Trinity. For those who enjoy the image of conformity know God as he is in himself, namely as first truth speaking by faith, and love him the same way by hope and charity as supreme friend. So we talked about faculties, we talked about acts, and now we're talking about objects. We can be assimilated to God who is first truth speaking, who is sumum bonum, who is divine friend and lover of our souls, that our faculties when God's knowledge of himself and love of himself is poured into them, can actually attain to God. That is to say that our acts of worship and theological propositions don't just terminate in some like vacuous void, but they actually end in God, and that forges with us a relationship. It gives us a kind of second-person knowledge of God, an I-thou relationship, a kind of Godward gaze whereby we hold the gaze of Christ and need never look away. That's just like a kind of alternate somewhat fluffy description of what it means to be in the state of grace, okay? So here we talked about faculties and then acts and then objects. So for our last point, let's reincorporate discourse about the body. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So from the description in Genesis 2, we know from the outset that to be embodied is an essential feature of being made to the image of God. And yet, what I have to describe, what I have described to this point, does not sound terribly embodied. Most of what I have said can be posited directly of angels who don't have bodies, or of separated souls who do not have bodies. So, where then do we begin in incorporating the bodily dimension? Here, I think it is most fruitful to start with the biological facts. <clears throat> not so as to be crass, but rather to start in a way that's rooted in our experience. <clears throat> and I think this is where we find St. John Paul II. So he begins, you know, he begins obviously with the reproductive dimension. And that's what we associate the theology of the body with principally and primarily. So he'll point out, and we know, uh, that we are physio physiologically gendered as male and female in view of sexual complementarity. 
So there are themes of this, so there are kind of notes of this in the tradition, some of which sound um, kind of deprecatory or slighting of women. Uh, I don't think that they're originally intended as such, but certainly St. John Paul II recovers those elements of the tradition in a way that's like theologically astute and sensitive. Um, so he's drawing from St. Augustine's uh, literal commentary on Genesis, where he asked, what was the reason for which Eve was introduced in the garden as a helpmate? And he says, just think, kind of like build up your image from the bottom, as we did when we were talking about powers of the soul. So what is a biological feature of our lives that we cannot do alone? He says, reproduction. So when we ask, we have to start with that, not because women are intended merely as wombs, but because we start with this fact and then our theology is built thereupon. We don't just start with a kind of um, vague or Gnostic sension, not Gnostic notion of like what a spiritualized body would entail. We start with what we have. So, um, <clears throat> as St. John Paul II explains it, sexual intercourse is part of God's original plan for man's flourishing and not a mere concession to the flesh or an effect of original sin. So you'll have some fathers of the church um, who will say that before the fall, men and women would have uh, they would have procreated in non-sexual means. You might encounter this in St. Gregory of Nyssa. St. Gregory of Nyssa, Origen, and Maximus the Confessor are, are three thinkers that you often hear come up in the Nouvelle Theologie uh, or in like the kind of resource Mont movement. So if you read Hanser's von Balthasar, you'll often hear his name. Um, and there are many great things to be recovered from those thinkers, but sometimes you hear elements of the tradition which were purposefully set aside because they were judged as not pertaining to the fullness of faith. And I would submit to you that this is one of them. So, for St. Augustine and for St. Thomas Aquinas, sexual intercourse is part of God's original plan, and it is not a mere concession to the flesh or effect of original sin. And it's at this point where St. John Paul II will talk about the nuptial meaning or language of the body. You've perhaps heard this before, okay? So, what do we mean by the nuptial meaning or the language of the body? Namely, that the body was originally intended and can become, through the transformation of grace and full realization of glory, transparent to the image at work in the soul. The body can become transparent to the image at work in the soul. And I'm deliberate there about the use of the word transparent. I don't mean that the body disappears, okay? But I mean that it becomes iconic in the sense that you see precisely through this material thing a spiritual reality, and that this material thing is chosen precisely for the communication of the spiritual reality. It is especially well-suited to the communication of this spiritual reality. A short paragraph from the Catechism. The human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul, and it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the Spirit. So, what is it that is being made known? What is it that is iconically present? What is it to which the body need be transparent? And I think we can take many points along these lines, but I think that one is principally intended in the theology of the body, and I think excellently so. Namely, that communion of persons begets communion of persons. Communion of persons begets communion of persons. At first blush, it sounds abstract, but let's take it a little closer. In God, communion of persons begets communion of persons. So God is subsisting communion of persons from all eternity. And God need not have created, but at a certain time, 
Love spilled over the bounds of the divine nature. And God expends himself in creation, saying many created things for the manifestation of his glory and as an invitation to his divine life. And he puts us in relationship unto relationship. Okay? This would be like a a classic Thomistic critique of a lot of enlightenment political thinking, like social contract theory, right? Namely that one exists prior to social entailment, St. Thomas would say, no, you're always and every born into a network of relationships. You're always born a son or daughter. You're always born, you know, with the possibility or the realization of brothers and sisters. You're always born into a family, into a community, into a church. So we are always and everywhere intended as social, as political, as ecclesial. And those bonds are to be many tethers that draw us into the very communion of God because it's communion all the way down, okay? So in God, communion of persons begets communion of persons unto communion of persons. And this is the very logic of marriage. This is meant to be the very logic of marriage. When you think about it, marriage is uh, very wise, very prudent, inasmuch as it ensures that the love that made the child is around later to welcome the child. So that in the ordinary course, a child that is born can recognize in the faces of its mother and father, that it was known, that it was loved, that it was chosen. And that that relationship of mother and father is broken open to the child as an invitation to a life exceeding an otherwise solitary existence, which we have said is just a hypothetical and per se impossible. So the communion of persons, the love of man and woman, is broken open unto children for the purpose of realizing communion of persons in the ultimate sense. Namely, that the supreme dignity of a husband and wife is to be co-creators with God, right? And not only in the sense of, like, they give the material component and God gives the spiritual component. We can say that they give spirit and matter. They give that. They are the chosen, appointed means through whom God chooses to infuse a human soul. They are the appointed and chosen means through whom God chooses to give the life of grace as they approach the font of baptism. They are the chosen and pointed means by whom God chooses to make this individual an adopted son of God, to begin the process whereby they are assimilated from faculty to act to object into the very divine life. So, a concluding point. Our place in the cosmos. St. Thomas asks the question, who is more to the image of God, angels or man? He does not hesitate to say that it is angels in the strict sense because angels have keener intellects and keener wills. So their intellectual nature is more powerful. It more adequately reflects the intelligent nature of God. But he says, in a certain sense, man more reflects the image of God by virtue of the fact that he gives life. So we more adequately or fully or at the very least particularly image God Inasmuch, he says, as man begets man. Because, he says, this gives indication of how the persons proceed. Son from father and Holy Spirit from father and son. So, think about the place that we occupy in creation. We are not meant to be angels, nor we are meant to be animals. We are meant to occupy precisely this place. We are meant to show God's glory in peculiar fashion, in distinctively human fashion, and that means as embodied souls, as spirit matter composites. And there, there are certain perfections of God which we are uniquely suited to make manifest. 
So, being body and soul, it's proper to us to get to the goal by many steps. Angels know intuitively, for us, it takes many, many acts. But one of the results of that is that the body can, in a certain sense, tell the story of the soul. Ludwig Wittgenstein asked the question, what is the best image of the soul? To which he responds, the body. We have a peculiar way of showing our intellectual nature in incarnate form. We are a kind of monstrance. We are, we are intended in God's original design to be perfectly and wholly manifesting of the divine image in matter. And all of material creation is ordered to us as crowning it and as showing its grandeur forth. And I would submit to you that this is only fully manifest, this is only fully evident at the resurrection of the body. And here we have a solution to a kind of paradox. If you ask the question, like, what does the body contribute to beatitude? Sometimes you're left at a loss because you don't want to say, on the one hand, that separated souls, the souls of the just in the presence of God, lack anything proper to their beatitude. We don't want to say that they're somehow, like, pining away after their bodies until such time as they are rejoined. We don't want to say that. But also, we don't want to trivialize the body. Okay? We don't want to say that it's just an appendage that you get at the end and you're like, interesting, a body. Okay? No. St. Thomas says that the joy of the soul will redound into the body. The word redundancy means literally overflow. So in the resurrection of the body, we will have full range, full scope for the overflow of God's gift of himself in such a way that it will be made manifest in our body. That our body, in the end, will tell perfectly the story of the soul. So this is the place of the body in the image of God. This is the place of the body in the manifestation of his glory. Thank you.